This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm ABA Journal web producer Lee Rawls, and today we're featuring juvenile justice in our Modern Law Library series by talking with Susan Madden Lankford about her newly released book, Born, Not Raised, Voices from Juvenile Hall. Susan, this book is actually the last entry of a trilogy. Can you tell me how you got started on this project? Well, I got started actually 20 years ago, not particularly on this book, but on the the trilogy itself. And I, I was doing some commercial photography in an empty jail using beautiful models, beautiful clothing, when the homeless pulled me out and said, why are you hanging around this old jail? What you want to do is come out and find out about the real life. And I started going out with the homeless, and I started finding out about another form of real life that was very exciting. I wasn't with floridly psychotic homeless when I was doing my photojournalism with them, but they were living a street life, and I got to see what that was like. They also entered and exited the local jail very frequently, and I had never been in a local jail. I had never been in a jail or a prison, and so... At that time, my husband was building the Hall of Justice in downtown San Diego, and I spoke with one of the judges there, and he said, well, you're going to have to go through the sheriff's department. Long story short, I ended up doing two and a half years of photojournalism interviewing with many, many different forms of female inmates incarcerated for everything from first-degree murder to multiple violations of probation and parole. And so I learned a great deal. I learned that they all had children for the most part. There may have been two or three out of the, the 60 to 80 inter- interviews or, or uh, individuals I interviewed who didn't have children, but most of them had two to six children. So I asked them, where are your kids? Well, they're in foster care or they're in juvenile hall or they're with my, my dad who molested me. Well, this was too graphic. I had to leave the, the jail project and go to the juvenile hall. And my daughter at the time was doing her undergraduate internship in psychology, and she was given permission to attend with me in the juvenile hall. And we got started. We created our own interviews, and we got to see the kids, and we worked with them in art projects, and we were in and out of the hall for over a year and a half, fascinated by a lot of these kids, a lot of their ingenuity, not their criminal ingenuity, but really these sparkling little minds that, that wanted to grow and were anxious to, to trust and anxious to love, and it just drew us in more and more and more until finally another director came into the juvenile hall and said, you're out of here. So I got to work at that point in time doing a lot of outside research with experts such as Dr. Bruce Perry, childtrauma.org, uh, Dr. Diane Campbell, many, many wonderful people who could take a look at the contributions that we had gotten from these kids. And they could see the drawings, and they could see the lack of syntax, and they could yet see that, that feel the powerful emotion that was coming through in these pieces of paper that we had gotten from the kids. And one of the wonderful things about this book is that this isn't just text. This, these are photos of the facilities. These are the drawings that the kids have done and the writing that they have submitted. And it's just it's heartrending, and it's really fascinating to see. Well, you know, thank you. Let me at, at this time tell you one of the one of the questionnaires um, we asked the, this little kiddo. He was only 15, and, and we said, "Hey, how do you feel inside juvenile hall?" And he said, "Inside, I feel hurt, angry, stupid. A lot of it's because I grew up with two drug addicted parents. 
My mom overdosed on heroin when I was 12. My grandpa also died when I was 12. I've been in, in and out of juvenile hall for almost three years right now. My dad is on the streets with diabetes with no money, and I can't help him. This is just some of what we would get from these kids and, and with the boys in very short order. We would be in each unit with the boys, and we would be working with 60 to 70 boys together. And they would, we'd, we'd find these little writings, these little secret writings, please don't forget me, um, don't give up on me. And we, I told Polly, my daughter, I said, you know, I realize what's going on here. We're not clergy. We're not uh, Narcotics Anonymous. We're not HIV. We're, we're not coming in as a program. We're doing something that's different. And these kids are looking at us like, can we trust you? Many of these kids were just, I mean, they were 13, 14, 15 years old. The ones who were 16, 17 were pretty well seasoned, and many of them headed off for a life and incarcerated in the state prisons. But the younger ones, you, you just felt the pain. And so we, we show that, but we also go off and talk to the experts to find out how can we help, what can we do, where, where have, have things been missed. What I found really fascinating with the experts, especially uh, Dr. Diane Campbell, who you mentioned earlier, is discussing the times at which inter intervening in these kids' lives can make a real difference. And it's not at 15 and 16. It's at 2 and 5 and really early markers that if they don't hit can send them down this long road. You know, as a mother of three adult and successful daughters, I'm proud to say, I was not aware of all these markers, all of the visits to the pediatricians, I wasn't told, oh, my gosh, if you don't, if this child doesn't become independent at the first stage in age two from you and individuate properly for this stage, it will be carried forward to the age of four or five. Your child may be having tantrums in kindergarten, and the teacher is not capable of dealing with it. The next thing you know, you're processing this child as being ADHD, when, in fact, there was some bonding and some nurturing that had been missed. Parents can still go back and grab it. But by the time they're seven and they're nine and they're no longer showing levels of imagination and curiosity because they've fallen so far behind in school, it becomes a very, very big problem. And that's where we discover that, and for example, in personality classic theories of modern research, Howard Friedman and Miriam Schustak contrast the child raised in a loving and nurturing environment with the child raised in a violent and chaotic family. And, of course, the child who's raised in a violent, chaotic family is going to have more of a likelihood of entering juvenile hall very early on. Juvenile hall is juvenile hall. It's, it's not a rehabilitative place. We, we like to think that there's some rehabilitation that's going on, but for the most part, it's a punitive place. And the kids do not have time when they go into a hall for a 20 to 30 day stay. They're not really getting education. They're not getting social skills. And many of these kids don't have social skills. So we're compounding the, the problem by recriminating criminals and, and, and giving them more sophisticated lessons from their compatriots who are also incarcerated. In this book, you talk to both lawyers and judges in the juvenile system. What changes in the juvenile court system are called for, in your opinion? Well, there are a lot of them. Um, we have to make sure that the kids are not warehoused. We have to do, um, in the state of Missouri, they have group homes now. They've practically abolished the, the juvenile halls, per se, as they have been designed in, in for, for what we have here in California, and most states have. And they have group homes where kids 
6 to 12 kids live in a home acting as a family with a dog and with a set of parents who are they're participating in setting the table. They're, they're having discussions around the table at night. They're not locked into cells. Now, granted, the majority of our kids who are in these juvenile facilities are nonviolent offenders. So there is opportunity, if it's remediation, if it's drug treatment, if it's education that they need, we have to impose that at that, at that time. We can do risk and needs assessment on these youth the same way that we, we can do with adults. In the state of California right now, we are releasing 40,000 inmates because of overcrowding. And the inmates are coming back to the county level for the counties, which are practically bankrupt, to try to handle through probation. Our kids are going to fall heir to that. And many of the kids who are in the facilities, this is not something that they are not familiar with. Um, their parents, their grandparents, in some cases we had three generations between the women's detention facility and the juvenile facility. We had three generations, mother and daughter and then child. And it's, it's oppressive. It is our duty to make sure that we get early childhood development under tow, that we don't dismiss behavior as, as misbehavior. It's behavior that's missed. And our schools, our educators have to be a part of this as well. I think that people have jumped the gun to get drugs too soon, a lot of these kids, and I'm not talking street drugs, I'm talking about the drugs for ADHD. Um, a lot of the teachers say, hey, you know, your child's acting out, and you better go see the pediatrician. Pediatricians aren't going to take the time to do a risk needs assessment on a child or understand what's going on completely in the family. So we can do that. The courts can do that. When a, a youth comes through the first time, the best thing to do is to not have them go to the juvenile facility. And right now in America, we have 550,000 kids in foster care on any given day. And foster parents do not have an educational requirement. You can be single, 18 years of age, and get money for taking care of a child, and you're called a foster parent. So you have kids who are, who are troubled anyway. They may have impulse control problems. They may not be up to par in, in education. And you've got an 18-year-old who doesn't do well in school either. We need to shape up. America is floundering about with the way that we're dealing with, with our juvenile justice. Did you come out of this project feeling hopeful for the future or not? I came out of this project feeling satisfied with a greater understanding and education of what's happening in our society. I attended a, a LEAD San Diego lecture series yesterday where our Sheriff Gore spoke and was explaining this thing called AB 109 where we have this return of all these prisoners coming back to our, our communities. And I listened to people who are on this LEAD San Diego uh, program who are concerned. They're, they're scared. You know, you've got somebody who's got an ankle bracelet who has been in the state prison, but now he's going to be in our neighborhood. We don't have enough police around. What, what's going to happen? Well, in San Diego, we are a county that put together something called Senate Bill 618. Unfortunately, when Jerry Brown went into office as governor for the second time, um, he abolished that because there isn't enough funds. To, to run it in his mind for for the state that is almost $14 billion a year in taxpayer money to operate 33 prisons. So we have a problem, and we've got 33 million people, and we've got 33 prisons, and we've got $14 billion in, in tax dollars. And so they're, they're not going to be releasing a lot of union workers out of these prisons, but they're returning the prisoners to the communities. And so hopeful, I'm... 
I'm querulous. I'm, I'm concerned about about how when we don't have programs that are uh, in place right now, what we do have is the agencies are working together because it's a crisis. So we do have probation talking to the sheriff's department. We do have the DA talking to probation and the sheriff. We do have the public defender. And we also have UCSD, Igor Kuznak, Dr. Igor Kuznak, who is brilliant at case management, and he's working with probation. But it's going to take this type of hands-on integration in order to control the out-of-control drug issue that we have in America today. And one thing's for sure, drugs are here to stay. They're not going anywhere. When we have kids at the age of 8 and 9 using drugs now, whereas 15, 20 years ago somebody might experiment between the ages of 16 and 18, but no, 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 no. It's alcohol and drugs are not something that, that kids are not, uh, do not find accessible and that they don't see every day. So it's, it's the way we want to live our lives. If we want to parent casually and if I think that we can be very, very um, responsible and start tackling parenting, which is not a natural thing for humans. It's natural for animals, but it is not natural for humans, and particularly in a day and age like today. Would you mind reading us a passage of your book so that we can get kind of a feel for it? Sure. This is from The Roots of Alienation, Chapter 4, Unmet Needs. Dr. Bruce Perry, I open with, millions of children have some degree of impaired bonding and attachment during early childhood. The problems that result from this can range from mild interpersonal discomfort to profound social and emotional problems. In general, the severity of problems is related to how early in life, how prolonged and how severe the emotional neglect has been. And I go on to say that in many cases, the kids, like the incarcerated women I had interviewed, would create pseudo-families among their peers. We noticed that some of the more sophisticated criminals were even housed among the meeker juveniles. In such a situation, how could positive change take place while the girls were incarcerated, for example, in, in the girls' rehab facility? So it, I took these questions back to Judge Jim Milliken, who had been the former presiding juvenile court judge, for a realistic chat about the future of these kids, as well as to ask him why they were unable to make positive changes in their lives while incarcerated. I said, many of these kids are returned to a toxic environment, Jim. You're releasing them to a worse place than the hall, yet the hall doesn't seem to answer their needs. And he says, that's the problem. The court needs to be the leader. Probation gives us what we want, and if we want a rigid system to warehouse kids, they'll do that. Plus, there's too much emphasis on confidentiality. Parents come and sue if the files aren't sealed. Some good things are happening, but not enough. My priority is getting them out of the hall, scare them, and get them out. I told Milliken what probation officer Henry Shankman had told me regarding the importance of probation. Shankman had said that an increase in teen violence reflected the increase in the number of teens alienated from their families. Then once in the system, the alienation continues. Youth in the criminal justice system often feel an entitlement to act out as a means of dealing with their pain. This fosters even more alienation. Milliken and I continued to identify issues wrapped around this alienation within family structure. He attributed the increased number of narcissistic personalities in the adult population of today's America to parents who fail to nurture children with love and to provide essential tools for their success. Such developmental experiences breed alienation, too. So then I went on, of course, and studied Alfred Adler and Karen Hornet and Freud and Young, and I got their perspectives, and then I started talking to Dr. Diane Campbell, and that's where we created 
the timeline that I have in the book that shows from birth to the age of 21, the positive growth changes as well as where the derailments can start to aggregate and create these devastating issues with kids ending up in the, in the juvenile system. It's really up to us as parents and as parents of our kids who are now parents to take note. And when we see things that are just not quite right and the kiddos are acting out a little differently, it's not just going to go away. It's, um, you know, books have been written about the fact that if the beast isn't civilized by the age of three, it's not going to be civilized. And, you know, it sounds kind of kind of corny, but, yeah, it really is true. You know, we have to get a handle on, on toddlers who, who have bad tantrums and try to figure out where they're really stemming from because this behavior does go on. Well, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Lee. I enjoyed it. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.